Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. What's up and welcome to Let's Go There. It's Shira and Ryan back in the house. Back again. What am I doing? I am wearing my sunglasses inside. This is strange. I mean, you know, I, I... have, I used to judge people that did that, but like now I kind of understand it. Well, they especially are prescription. Like when you go out, yeah, and especially if they're prescription. Like I just got sunglasses that were prescriptions not too long ago, and I would forget my glasses and being like, "Oh, I need to wear something." The worst is though, I'll tell you, doing that when all you have is your sunglasses and you can only really use them to see well at night. And so you have to wear your sunglasses at night. I've had to do that. It's not fun. Where's your actual glasses? Well, like if either I forgot them at home or like, but I don't you know. like case. Like I've noticed. I know. Like you, I feel like you used to be. <laughs> I guess this is how sight where eyesight works. It just gets worse. Yeah. It just gets worse. No, so that's worse. happened to me before where I was like, oh my god. Uh, like if it's it's not like a long distance, I could yeah. I could drive, but it's not necessarily the best, including if it's the highway or I need to know what streets I'm going on if I don't know the area. Oh god. Right? Right? And so I will wear my sunglasses, but then I'm like, this isn't ideal because it's pretty dark and it's dark. We were anyway. just talking about aging yesterday. You didn't yep. bring this up. Well, I forgot because I'm aging. <laughs> 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 All right. Lots coming up with the show today. Oh, it's funny. We're talking about uh, some of the best and worst countries to travel to as a queer person, according to a recent study. Uh, that is next hour, 3.20 p.m. Pacific uh, 6.20 p.m. Eastern. I almost forgot that. that. Age. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's actually a backstage. Stop it. Real time. <laughs> Plus, uh, we're also going to talk about psychedelics and the latest studies coming out. Uh, well, I'm excited about this because it's about to get voted on in Colorado. Oh, that's actually really Times cool. are changing. You know, Colorado's always a movement when it comes to drugs. Yes, cannabis, too. It has to. It's too cold up there. They have to figure out how to make it through. That is true. It's not even the most cold place, but I'll go with that. It's not? No, Alaska. I, girl, of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Anyway. <laughs> Colorado's known to be cold. Anyway, and I got to stick t- around <laughs> for some tea involving Army Hammer. Okay, can I tell them about this giveaway, yes. please? <laughs> Channel Q wants to fly you and a friend to Orlando to see Ben Platt at his biggest North American tour to date. Enter to win at WeirdChannelQ.com and for your chance to win round trip airfare for two, a two-night hotel stay, $200 gift card, and two VIP tickets to see Ben Platt in Orlando October 6th. Just head over to WeirdChannelQ.com and enter for your chance to win. Well, now let's get into some what's trending this hour. 
New York Attorney General Latisha James is examining the business practices of Donald Trump and the Trump Organization. But Trump said he's declining to answer questions invoking his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Uh, which is pretty ironic considering what he said about pleading the fifth in the past. Here's a few of those moments. When you have your staff taking the Fifth Amendment, taking the fifth so they're not prosecuted. When you have the man that set up the illegal server taking the fifth, I think it's disgraceful. The mob takes the fifth. If you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? Fifth Amendment. Horrible. Horrible. He pleaded the fifth and that was the end. We never heard about him again. Um, well, that is an amazing mix of all those moments. We're talking more about Trump taking the fifth and what it all means. And, you know, what this week means for him and where it's going because there's a bunch of things happening at once legally. More on that in 15 minutes. Moving on to the FDA, who has authorized a change in how monkeypox vaccines are administered in efforts to get more people vaccinated with the limited supply. Now, each vaccine vial that previously produced one shot can now be used for five shots as long as it's injected between layers of the skin rather than under the skin. Because of this change, Health Secretary uh, Xavier Becerra says there will be undoubtedly enough monkeypox vaccines for everyone in a high-risk category. Here he is. We really urge everyone, whether you're the provider who will administer the vaccine or if you're someone who really believes that you need the vaccine, Please help us because once you uh, begin to use that vial that has the dosage, we have to consume it. We, we, we can't store it. And so while we can get five vaccines into arms of um, Americans who need the monkeypox vaccine, we have to have five Americans readily available. And so we really want to make sure we're coordinating. That's where all the training, the education, the outreach will be important. So we make the best use of those vaccines that we have so we can get to everyone who needs one. All right, that's good news. Again, Health and Human Services Secretary. I just said Health Secretary before, Xavier Becerra. Moving on to a Nebraska teenager and her mom who are facing a handful of felonies after state officials allege the girl self-managed an abortion. Oh, this story's wild. And how did they find this out, you might ask? Well, uh, reportedly Meta, you know, the company that owns Facebook and Instagram, turned over Facebook messages between the mom and the daughter discussing the starting of hormones assumed to be linked to a self-induced abortion. Meta turned the data over in June in response to a search warrant seeking the daughter and mom's information, including their private messages and their internet search history. Officers interviewed the girl and her mom, and they had told police she'd miscarried after 28 weeks. However, prosecutors are resting much of their case on the Facebook messages. So we're thinking that the FBI raiding Donald Trump's home is uh, represents the destruction of the democracy, and yes, yet this is okay. I know. I'm, I'm, I mean, come on. I'm, it is kind of wild. Um, when I was here listening to the story, um, I mean, I I think it was from what I was understanding, and I may have been wrong about it, but like it felt like she was like 26 weeks or something in this pit. Like she was able to take this pill, right? Or the mother gave her this pill, and I'm just like, 26 weeks feels very, like, far in, right? It's like 36 weeks to have a baby. Right? Oh, my God. I need to... 26 weeks. I don't know. See, that's why I'm like, I, you know, I can't get pregnant. I'm that person that can pregnant. Uh, yeah. So that's why... It is... Yeah. I feel like this was one of the cases that we're probably going to see pop up 
and from a month into six. Yeah, I mean, this is like not talking points. It's not a regular thing, but conservatives love to attach themselves. Well, yeah, because this is what people's are people are doing. Like, no, this is actually someone that it's a one-off. Yeah, it is. It's yeah, it's a one-off situation. At the same time, so but using Facebook. I think that's something that's very nerve-wracking, very uh, using social media, seeing how it's being used in these ways. Yeah, it's it's a violation of privacy. But that said, you could say if abortion was legal, maybe she would have gone to a doctor and been informed that this isn't possible, right? right? And then, of course, if she did do it herself, yes, it is considered, it could be considered, quote-unquote, murder, possibly. So, anyway. Yeah. Well, that was what's trending this hour. What's happening in entertainment news? Well, we really don't have that much time left. Oh, um, we got really yeah, into that meta got, story. Yeah, we got into that other thing. So I'll I'll carry you on to the next hour. We have a new trailer for Army Hammer. Uh, it's called The House of Hammer. It's a docu uh, documentary about his cannibalistic lifestyle and the sex uh, kink stuff that is, um, you know, surrounded him, the scandal, and they're really unpacking his his entire thing that went down. It's a little crazy. The trailer's wild, so stick around for that. All right. Next up, Trump is refusing to answer any questions asked by the New York Attorney General. This could be a bad look for him, and we're talking about it next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Former President Donald Trump is getting hit with a double whammy this week. Of course, there was the FBI raid at his Mar-a-Lago home, and now today... He gave a sworn testimony at the office for the New York Attorney General. They're investigating him and his company's business practices in the state. And he pled the Fifth Amendment. Again, uh, can we play what he said? You know, there was this video clip. Uh, uh, Okay, we're not playing. He said that many times, including in 2016. He said that if you're going to plead the Fifth Amendment, I mean, you're not innocent if you plead the Fifth Amendment. So why is he doing this? Joining us right now is... No one. So uh, I we thought, are sorry, here by I, ourselves. Oh, sorry. I heard that our phone went up because we did have a guest, but sorry. Yeah, that was my so... I, <laughs> here's the thing. I think what's really interesting here is everything that's being played out. For me, what's been coming up is the ways that we've seen Republicans all automatically kind of use the same yeah. language when we think about Hillary Clinton and her, the emails, mm-hmm. right? Um, they were so down to chant, lock her up. They were so down to chant... Um, and be really supportive of the FBI who actually conducted that investigation towards Hillary Clinton during the whole, um, you know, checking her email situation. Now that the tables have turned, it's a completely different situation. And, And I do think it is hilarious to see Donald Trump in this moment, um, you know, plead the fifth. I was reading this um, Washington Post article talking yeah. about Eric Trump, and he invoked the Fifth Amendment more than 500 times when he sat for questioning in October 2020 in the same investigation. And, and, and so, like, y- what? Yeah, I mean, and let's be clear, what's happening in New York is separate from the Mar-a-Lago thing. It just happens that it's all happening this week, although is anything by chance anyway? But, um, you know... That well, I think said, it's all. I think it's all. In my opinion, I think it's all pretty connected in the ways how we've seen Trump um, and the Trump family kind of face these criminal and civil investigations into their business practices. Right? I mean, this has been happening 
in the ways that I know of since like 2019, specifically um, at the Trump organization before he even entered into the White House. So a lot of these conversations, a lot of the ways that we've seen the Trump family navigate doing what they're doing now and, and President Trump reacting in the way that he ha- is now, it's, I mean, this is this is bound to come to a head. Well, it's the, it's the typical thing. Well, we're all being gaslit, right? It's like they they're being investigated for a reason, they are a target. They are a very public family. But it just so happens, like, I think that we saw it with Joe Biden and his son. We saw it with Hillary Clinton. I don't think it's a Democrat or Republican thing. I think that both sides get investigated if there's certain things that appear to or wrongdoing that uh, that has happened. Well, and that's how the that's how the system works, right? It's supposed to look into these things. It's supposed to to investigate when it needs to investigate. And if there's nothing to find, guess what? You just let them investigate, and and there's nothing to find. But the fact that you are hiding things, the fact that there's you know um, all of this archival. Um, this, this, these documents that are supposed to be in the authorities. I mean, the Presidential Records Act mandates that documents like memos, letters, emails, and other communications produced during a presidential term be preserved. And the fact that they actually found stuff, like they found well, fifteen that's what I'm boxes, interested in seeing that were supposed to be archived, and some of them were marked classified. Girl, what is going on? But even in in January, you know, they kept on saying to him. We want to know if you've kept any boxes. Finally, he goes, oh, I gave them what they needed. But it's like, why do they need to continue asking? You know what I'm which is Which is why they had to, or they decided that a raid was needed to be done to make sure that they did give everything up. But my thing is, and this is how I've been thinking about this ever since we found out a raid was even happening. One, I still can't believe that he was dumb enough to have this stuff at his his home, Right. This feels like, if you're going to be a criminal, be a good one. And my thing is, even then, if he is a good criminal, do you think he made copies? Do, do you think there's actual copies of this stuff that they, they've they basically now, you know, contained all... They, you know, there could be. I don't know. It just, it just feels like this is not going to stop anytime soon. And I'm a little worried because the judge that authorized this... He is now talking. There was an exclusive um, that I just recently saw by a um, a journalist online that they just did the story. Basically, this journalist is um, re- talked about the judge is literally getting death threats. There are posts. Yeah, that's the issue. Well, that's the thing is if know, he if he was a responsible uh, professional adult adult. <laughs> well, sorry, I can't believe you're even I using say, that language. Uh, you know, he would say, listen, they're doing what they need to do legally. Let's let's just move through this and just, you know, get to the other side of it. And that is not appropriate. Right. But of course, the issue is with all these different things, he continues to feed into the fire of his fan base. Right. And and a flame. uh, What's it called? Uh, Fuel the fire, you know, Um, and fan, fan the fire. And that is my, my biggest worry with all of this is now it is getting political. And it's not like they when did it on the political, political side. I mean, it's always political. But the narrative that, you know, the Democrats are ruining the Constitution and this should never happen and it's just a destruction. It's actually the opposite. What they were doing is that. And now, once again, 
it's being looked at in the other way, right? So I think it's just going to continue to confuse people and continue to support, unfortunately, uh, the Republicans, which we'll see what happens with that from all of this happening at the same time. I think Democrats really need to get clear in why and how they're doing these things. But of course, if judges are going to do things, they can't stop them, including the FBI. Well, next up, this drug maker is funding monkeypox education for several LGBTQ advocate groups. Could this help handle the virus? More next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Now, many organizations are trying to get ahead of the misinformation around monkeypox. And one pharmaceutical company, Gilead, is helping to fund more education for LGBTQ plus groups. Joining us to discuss more is Jane Stafford, Executive Director of Public Affairs. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. No, we're happy that you're here as well, because I think we should start this off by asking, like, what in who is Gilead? What do you all do? Speak to us about that. So Gilead Sciences is a biopharmaceutical company, and we're based in the Bay Area, just south of the San Francisco airport, and for 35 years have worked to um, bring life-saving medicines to people in need. Um, really to create a, a healthier world for people. And the company is committed to doing that by advancing innovative medicines to prevent life-threatening diseases like HIV, viral hepatitis, and more recently in cancer. And so let's get into what you're doing for monkeypox education for the communities that you are helping to serve. And was this something that you had been working on or you expedited because of everything happening? <laughs> it's a great question. So I think one thing that's important to note is that um, throughout Gilead's 35-year history, um, we've worked with community organizations to address critical public health challenges and healthcare disparities, particularly those faced by the LGBTQ plus community and among people specifically impacted by HIV. And so the conversations, you know, as soon as the first cases of monkeypox were detected in the U.S. and, and around the world, um, conversations started to come up about the disproportionate impact of this on the communities that we care most about. So particularly if we think about the percentage of HIV positive people who have gotten monkeypox, and then if we think more broadly um, just about the disparities where, where monkeypox is um, cropping up, we're seeing the same populations that we work with around the globe. And those are primarily focused on organizations working in HIV and HIV prevention specifically. Yeah, and what's really interesting is um, I think I would love to know about the process of choosing the organizations that you're working with. I mean, why are HRC GLAD, the National Black Justice Coalition, and the National Center for Lesbian Rights, you know, chosen? And do you think about smaller organizations, kind of like grassroots organizations who are just as important, but aren't as, I guess, have such a media, a huge media platform that can talk to the masses? What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, that's also a really good question. And I think so we, we we did this really quickly. And part of what we were trying to be responsive to was what we were hearing from community. And one of the first things that we were hearing from community is there is misinformation, there is disinformation, there's lack of information access um, out there about MPV, how it's transmitted, what are the public health messages that are um, you know being conveyed. And, and so one of the things that we decided as the first prong of our approach was we have to deploy public education and vaccine communications 
campaigns, and we need to do it as widely and as deeply as we possibly can so that every community around the the country and across the globe can get access to accurate information about MPV and really quickly. We also wanted to make sure that that was happening kind of in every way, shape, and form. And so the organizations that you listed, the GLADs, the HRCs, the National Black Justice Coalition, and the National Center for Lesbian Rights um, were kind of logical go-tos for this initial component of the work we're doing around MPV. They have a megaphone. They have the ability to get messages out very, very quickly, very, very widely, and across a number of different platforms. And um, and each one of them brings kind of a unique expertise um, to what they're doing. So if you take National Center for Lesbian Rights, for example, they have an acumen and lots of expertise on the legal side. And so they can sort of think about what are the legal issues and is there information and misinformation being shared that they could respond to. Um, and, and then you think about GLAD and, you know, GLAD can get to influencers and celebrity who are reaching out to them to say, we don't know what to share, you know, with our followers about MPV. Can you help us out here? So that was um, a, a pretty easy decision on the sort of groups that we went with on the out the gate on the public education campaign that we're that we're starting and um, and I think that that's the rationale for the large groups. What I would say about the smaller organizations, the small grassroots organizations, both here in the U.S. but globally, is that we are also responding to them with these um, emergency funding. So we are making um, up to fifty thousand U.S. dollars available mm. for existing grantees to apply for to do exactly this, which is respond to the NPV outbreaks in their areas. We know that this is having a huge impact on small organizations. And we also know that organizations are having to divert funds that they had allocated to other critical programs, right? And so by making these dollars available to them, our hope is that they'll be able to use these dollars and continue to, you know, uh, provide the critical services that they're providing. Yeah. while using these dollars either for education campaigns or to fill, you know, workforce shortages, which we know there are going to be. Um, you know, that we're, we're really trying to attack this at a, from as many angles as we possibly can um, and uh, imagine that, you know, we're going to continue to learn as the MPV uh, evolves over time. So this is our first uh, effort out the gate but we're paying a lot of attention to how this is going to evolve. Well, thank you so much for joining us to break all this down. I think it's so important in the work that you are doing to make sure everyone is fully educated is very, very important. So Jane Stafford, the Executive Director of Public Affairs, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. All right, well, next up, why one actor is getting heat for speaking out about intimacy coordinators and the future of sex scenes after this. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Let's talk about sex scenes and intimacy coordinators. So a lot of people have been talking about intimacy coordinators. Well, at least the first time I really started hearing about it more so was around Bridgerton because they used... No, it's a post-Me Too movement thing. Yeah, well, the first time... Yeah, I'm, I'm realizing that. For me, the first time I really heard about it as because maybe Bridgerton was so sex-heavy... I remember a lot of interviews with the intimacy coordinators talking about like how they did it, how they made it feel so real, etc. Well, now there's an interview with an actor that has come out and he's being called out because 
Uh, he is talking about this actor, Sean Bean, in an interview with British Times Magazine. He said that intimacy coordinators would spoil the spontaneity and inhibit his performance. And uh, he had a role back in 1993, a movie. So this person is not young necessarily. What? Uh, 1993? Yeah. The movie was called Lady Chatterley's Lover. That's when I was born. Yeah. He said it would inhibit me because it's drawing attention to things. I think the natural way lovers behave would be ruined by someone bringing it right down to a technical exercise. You don't know who Sean Bean is? He's from Game of Thrones. Yes, I haven't gotten into that. He literally, I mean, he kind of died the first, like, episode, I think. Oh, but still. But he played a memorable role. All right. Well, but he's uh, had a it was, cool he, career before. He has a big but... enough name that this statement, yes, he does look well, familiar. this statement is wild. So, yeah, here's the thing. is like a lot of people obviously have called it the fact that without that, there's a lot of sexual assault on what set. What is the spontaneity of sex? Like, well, what if you're a mean? what's it what's it called? And like the if actor you're catching a boner or something is that ruining? <laughs> I think that people that what is the 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 actors that like need to live it out and pretend they're like the 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 method actors. Or That's whatever. strange. To I think- mean, it it is. It I I think that this is one of those things. Is it's not like whatever floats your boat. Um, I think some people feel more comfortable doing he certain things. He wants his boat to float. <laughs> and other people feel better doing it a He's certain way. He's upset when an intimacy coordinator calls him out because his boat is floating. Well, yeah, he he's doing it, quote unquote, the old school way, which was very problematic. And so things change and you got to change with it, with the times. Like if you don't feel comfortable in that, doing it in that way, then you need to be down with making it work. And he's obviously not down for the cause. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Really appreciate it. <laughs> I, think I that, thought it was a conversation. <laughs> no, I, I do. I think those are your thoughts, right? I, now I want to kind of jump in here. Yeah, you're, um, you're always welcome to. The mic's on. <laughs> yes, Continue. I know. I'm just talking. Oh, my goodness. Um, okay, so I think what's interesting here is intimacy coordinators are just kind of like something when I was on set, I had to get really used to, um, like, COVID-19 coordinators, like, those coordinators, it felt like that was really difficult to get used to. But, like, once you're in the flow of everything and they're, like, not being so intense Why, what about, are they doing? I mean, you have to make sure your mask was on. Like, you can't chew in. Like, you have to, when you're not eating, you got to put it up. Like, there's no time, like, where you can be without a mask. And that was their job, to make sure that everyone was tested, everyone was, and they made sure that COVID-19 protocols were being followed, right? And so I think the idea of having coordinators on sets can feel, like, restricting and can feel like oh dang like this person's job is literally to kind of be down your neck but when it comes to like intimacies in the wake of the the me too movement um especially in the film industry there has to be someone on set to make sure everyone is uh, everyone's comfortable and not just the the cisgender men to be comfortable it has to be every person on that set who is a part of that and normally i would assume like sex scenes are like very closed sets like it's just like you the director and like whatever camera needs to You'd be help. there did i well, i've heard of i've heard that actually being more and more happening yeah on now a lot of sets. Now, now things have changed post me too movie. when i was 18 and i was on the set of an mtv show we're about to wrap up and i had to wear uh pasties nothing else well underwear but it was like it basically looked like I was nude because no, no. I had to drop a towel and they had to show it from the chest up, which meaning I could have worn whatever I wanted. Yeah, but you could have. You, you know, have to it was a bit. Bu- there was a lot of people on set, oh, and it wow. was really intimidating. I was wow. yeah, I was eighteen. That's it was interesting. Really scary. 
But I'm happy weird. things are changing so that doesn't happen to another 18-year-old here. But I think if you keep having, you know, people like Sean Bean who feels constricted or, you know, it spoils the process, that's just wild. That is really weird to me. I wonder what James Ranko would have to say. I know, that's right. All right, next up we've got What's Trending This Hour. Don't go anywhere. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is here to help you grow, whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits. Shopify helps you sell everywhere, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 15% better on average compared to other other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash odyssey podcast all lowercase go to shopify.com slash odyssey podcast now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash odyssey podcast this episode is brought to you by progressive insurance whether you love true crime or comedy celebrity interviews or news you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue and guess what now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the name your price tool from progressive it works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the show. More music coming up right here on Channel Q. Uh, right now, are we doing our flyaway giveaway? Yes, we are. Yes. Guess what? So Channel Q wants you and a friend to go uh, to Orlando to see Ben Platt at his biggest North American tour to date. Enter to win at WeAreChannelQ.com for your chance to win round-trip airfare for two, a two-night hotel stay, $200 gift card, and guess what? Two VIP tickets to see Ben Platt in Orlando October 6th. Just head over to WeAreChannelQ.com and enter for your chance to win. All right. Well, coming up on the show, a study was done to find out which are the best and worst countries for LGBTQ people to travel to. We're taking a look at that list in 15 minutes. Then uh, the future of psychedelics in this country and what state is actually looking to vote on that on mushrooms in November in uh, 30 minutes. Let's get into some what's trending this hour though right now. 
A grand jury in Mississippi has declined to indict the white woman who accused 14-year-old Emmett Till of making advances towards her nearly 70 years ago. Allegations that led to the black teen's brutal death. A LaFleur County grand jury last week heard seven hours of testimony from investigators and witnesses, but said there was insufficient evidence to indict Carolyn Bryant Donham on charges of kidnapping and manslaughter. Moving on. This story's uh, wild. Yes. I mean, but also I kind of feel conflicted about him because, I mean, at this point, like, even if she was convicted, it's like, she's, like, really she's old. old on oxygen tanks. Like, I think there is something to be said about having Holding accountable to, or... Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm hoping that the family and everyone kind of finds some sort of... I don't know. I hope they find some sort of closure to this. But at this point, she is... I mean, I... I've seen the photos and I'm just like, wow, she's what could happen. And but even though I guess in Germany there was uh there's a lady that she was sentenced because she was connected to like Nazis during yep. the Holocaust. And so it's like different places, it still shows that people accountability doesn't matter how like as long as it happens, depending on you know, we'll still bring them to trial. Yeah. Yeah. And this just doesn't feel like they did it. It's kind of a really sad situation. Definitely. Uh, moving on to primaries. Primaries happened last night. We got some wins. Lee Fink has won the Democratic primary election for Minnesota State House District. Uh, she, uh, they are a journalist, advocate, filmmaker who will now advance to November's general election, where she's going to face off uh, against Republican nominee Trace Johnson. It's a win also, um, if it happens in November, it would make Fink the first out transgender state legislator ever elected in Minnesota. All right. Yeah, and here she is speaking last month before being nominated. Let's go there. Well, that was our show, Bumper. <laughs> I'm like, wait, that was so strange. I'd be really impressed if she said her name. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? never been represented in the Capitol. My community is severely at risk, and we, are, we have trans families fleeing their homes with no place to live because of the current situation that's happening in this country. So... I would never compromise or deny that protecting trans people is absolutely core to what I'm doing. Every issue is a trans issue. Abortion is a trans issue. Gun violence is a trans issue. I don't have to talk about being trans in those committee rooms because we solve gun violence that helps trans people. Now, another win, uh, Becca Ballant won the Democratic nomination for Vermont's at-large congressional district. The state's Senate president is favored to win the general election in the heavily Democratic state. It's a win um, in November, and it would make Ballant the first openly LGBTQ lawmaker, as well as the first woman ever elected to Congress from Vermont. There you go. Two names to look out for. Those were uh, the What's Trending This Hour headlines. What's happening in entertainment news? Woo, it's time to talk Army Hammer. Um, Army Hammer's alleged victims have come forward in the first trailer for Discovery Plus's new documentary series called The House of Hammer. It's time for the team report. Those pop culture stories trending right now. So the explosive first trailer released uh, literally today includes footage of two of Army's exes. Um, Basically, they both came forward to detail their harrowing experiences um, and and include screenshots of messages and voice notes that ARMY, I guess, allegedly sent them. This three-part series also features ARMY's Army's aunt, Casey Hammer, who is the granddaughter of Arm and Hammer, the businessman who made the family fortune in the oil business. 
I hope y'all are ready for this. Here is a clip of the trailer. The Hammer name wielded a lot of prestige and power, but beneath it all was a dark world of deceit, betrayal, and corruption. Very wealthy, privileged men got away with different bad things throughout these generations. And it's what happened to Army Hammer to a sick degree. You just don't wake up and become this abuser. There has to be a seed that's planted. My name is Casey Hammer, and I'm about to reveal the dark, twisted secrets of the Hammer family. Oh. What? <laughs> Yo! The, now, of course, Army has called all the allegations of sexual misconduct and abuse BS, while his attorney um, has taken a more prefer- professional approach in denying any wrongdoing. But this is wild. I wonder who's going to be tuned in. It seems like once this was dropped online, it was pretty explosive, and everyone's like, oh my God, we need to know more. So that's your T Report. We got more coming up next hour. All right. After this, are you looking for a vacation spot or a new home, perhaps? Well, this list of the best and worst places for queer people to travel could help with your decision. Next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. You know, traveling for queer folks can be very difficult, and we really always want to keep everyone educated on some of the worst and safest countries for LGBTQ travel, especially um, with everything happening, not only in this country, but around the world. And so joining us is Asher Ferguson, a travel and family journalist who actually creates this list Every year, we ha- I feel like we had him on last year talking about it, but now we got to talk about the changes. Asher, thank you so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, my God. Australian, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, did, God, I knew it. it. I remembered. Okay, so, Asher, talk to us a little bit about um, some of the, the, the changes that we've seen over time from the last uh, list that you put out versus now. Have there been any significant changes in Yeah, well, one thing we did is previously we only had 150 countries and now we have over 200, basically every country in the world. And so the worst destination previously was Nigeria, but Brunei, an island off the coast of Indonesia, has taken that worst spot now. Um, And so there's been several countries that have like gotten into all the worst spots. Another big change is we added transgender murder rates per capita. Mm. And a lot of South American countries have really high rates, like Brazil, for example, um, previously ranked around 15th, but now they're 33 on the list because they have such high violence towards especially trans individuals. Um, And I'm not sure why the South American countries are so violent towards trans individuals, but it was very eye-opening this year doing that research. I mean, yes, people should definitely check it out. Again, uh, outTraveler.com talks about it. Then you all have also the website AsherFerguson.com. I, I guess with this knowledge, how are people supposed to navigate where they travel? Just avoid, I mean, if anything's on the list, do they just avoid it? Is it like if there's a one that's on a list like Midway, they could still go visit? Yeah, I think it's a case-by-case basis because certain cities and tourist areas can sometimes be very LGBTQ-friendly, even when the laws of the country as a whole are not friendly. And so, for example, the Maldives, this paradisal island south of India, 
is an amazing destination for the LGBTQ individuals, but the country as a whole isn't very friendly. It's just that when you're in those fancy tourist resorts, those like little things floating on the water, then you're going to have a much different experience than if you went into the local city. So it's really a matter of doing extensive research on the destination And obviously, certain countries are going to be very safe in a lot of the Western European countries, for example, and you don't really need to think about it. But when you start getting higher on the list, like number, let's say, 40 or 50, then I would recommend really doing your research. Yeah, I mean, you have a criteria that you base all of this on. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and why that criteria is so important for this type of uh, research? in ranking yeah so so we have 10 ranking factors these include legalized same-sex marriage worker protections criminalization of violence and a really great measurement is the gallup poll that asks a thousand people in every single country on the list is the area where you live a good place to live for gay or lesbian people a yes or no answer and some countries had 91 percent of the people saying yes whereas other countries had almost 0% saying yes. And then we also looked at transgender legal identity laws, trans murder rates, and then, of course, on the opposite opposite side of the spectrum, we have, is same-sex relationships illegal, and what are the punishments for that? And are uh, propaganda and morality laws in place that prevent the discussion of pro-LGBTQ issues? So countries that have all of those laws in place that are really against being queer, those are the countries I would really be cautious and want to do extra research on. Any uh, positive vibes to leave us with? (laughs) Yeah, there are a bunch of changes that we're seeing. We've been doing this since 2019. And overall, countries are improving, I would say, with many new countries legalizing same-sex marriage. For example, Switzerland just this summer passed the laws and there's been a wave of marriages in Switzerland. So whenever I see that, I'm just like so happy because I've spent so much time reading the negative news. And so um, there are good things happening around the world. And I would say that like the groundswell is there for the whole world to be accepting. And Uh it's just a matter of time. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you for breaking down this map of the worst and safest countries for the LGBTQ travelers waiting to travel. Asher Ferguson, uh, thank you so much for being here once again. We really appreciate you. Thank you. Have a good day. All right, next up, psychedelics are being used to treat PTSD, anxiety, depression, so much more. We have the top organization out there who does this work, MAPS, joining us to discuss that next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan, Channel Q. Well, we've talked about psychedelics on the show before and how it's been proven to help with PTSD, depression, and anxiety. Uh, Some recent news, big big names and celebs have been talking about this, but Aaron Rodgers is the uh, recent celebrity to talk about this and speak out about psychedelics helping him with his own mental health. 
and Colorado. Voters will decide whether to legalize psychoactive mushrooms statewide this November. Really interesting. Yes. Here to share more is Betty Aldworth and Stephen Huang from MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, or Multiple Disciplinary. I always say, sorry, I always say multi, I always use, say that, but now I guess it's, I've been saying it wrong the whole time. <laughs> It is multidisciplinary. As long as we're saying maps. That's all that matters. (laughs) Thanks for being here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, um, so many interesting things happening right now that are timely. First, before we get into the timeliness of this and where we're at, uh, let's give us some context as to, you know, what types of studies have been done um, that make this a credible thing because a lot of people might say, oh, yeah, sure, you know, this is just for hippie dippies and like, does psychedelics actually help? But there is data around this. Yes, lots of data. We're actually in our phase three clinical trials. Um, MAPS has been around since 1986 working on MDMA um, legalization um, to treat PTSD. Amazing. Which is, I mean, quite incredible because it it does feel like we're in this space where it's becoming, I guess, more normalized or just talked about in a way. How are you all getting folks kind of on board to this new wave of thinking, especially what can it actually unlock? What can it do for folks? Yeah, it's actually interesting how much the demand is coming in quicker than we can almost like grasp it. Um, I think there's a realization that we're in a mental health crisis right now. And this movement is getting traction because it's starting to feel like, you know, there's not enough existing treatments for PTSD. Um, the existing treatments aren't working for everyone. Um, and the movement is getting legitimacy because MDMA-assisted therapy might be a really effective way to treat PTSD. And uh, Betty, what are you seeing from these trials exactly? Like, what is the connection? How is it helping? Yeah, so in our first phase three trial, we saw that 88% of participants had a clinically significant reduction in PTSD symptoms, and uh, almost a third, just about a third, were no longer qualified for PTSD diagnosis after the treatment. So what we're seeing is that MDMA is really a catalyst for therapy, over 42 hours of therapy, about 24 of which um, include... Uh, the MDMA sessions, uh, folks are able to really approach their traumatic memories and the ways that they their traumatic memories influence their lives in a new and different kind of way. Now, listen, it doesn't work for everybody, but for those who it does work for, that's the experience. They learn how to approach their trauma differently. But I, I do wonder, because this all sounds really great, and I know there's some, like, obviously so many initiatives to decriminalize all of this, but... I'm wondering in the ways that this country has even reacted to slowly decriminalizing marijuana, how are we supposed to get to, you know, psychedelics in this way? It feels like it may be too soon. Like, do you see it happening, really? That is valid. Yeah, go for it, Betty. Yeah, sorry. These are two totally different pathways, right? Like, when we're talking about FDA approval of medicines and therapies to treat a diagnosed condition, that's something that's really quite different than decriminalizing substances for personal, celebratory, social, or wellness use. And most of the action that we've seen in the last 10 years in cannabis has really been around that social use, um, although a lot of people are using for wellness. But 
what we're talking about are, you know, scientifically uh, robust and thorough studies of treatments with uh, FDA oversight and then eventual FDA um, evaluation of our application to consider approval. And, and yet you wanted to jump in as well, Stephen? No, I think that answered my question. Okay. <laughs> I was just sure if you wanted to add to that. No, I think it's interesting because like when you talk about psychedelics, there's MDMA and the trials you mentioned, and then there's uh, psychoactive mushrooms. These are, they're, they're this similar in terms of, uh, what they deliver but and it all sounds fun is it is it or you know and they're and they're following different paths in terms of legalization or uh, using it in a medical therapeutic way yeah they're they're kind of taking different pathways so you know the work that we're doing with mdma we're going through the fda and um that's a pretty arduous process of proving safety and efficacy and going through all these trials um it seems like mushrooms may be taking a different route. Um, what's happening in Oregon is actually voters approved um, a method, you know, uh, a pathway around the FDA. And so voters approved mushrooms um, in Oregon. And so that's a different way that, that mushrooms are becoming more mainstream. Yeah, so I, I just got to jump in where, oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, if ahead. I can and say that, like, you know, at MAPS, we're very much in support of you know, psychedelic-assisted therapies, but also decriminalizing psychedelics for personal use because the criminalization of substances is um, remarkably harmful for people and societies. So, you know, we're in support of all of this. A lot of our activities at the nonprofit are around decriminalization and, and changing minds about psychedelics in general, as well as the research. Well, and I, I think that actually answered my next question because I, I, I always want to know, like, with all of your work, the end goal here, right? To to get, you know, to get everyone on board. What does that look like for you all in a perfect way? <laughs> perfect. <laughs> wow. No, perfect, perfect loaded. But, what's you know. A, what's the scenario you hope for yeah, uh, you know, in the next two years? Yeah, so we're looking for the um, for FDA approval, but we're also really, you know, looking to help people understand that psychedelics very well may have beneficial uses outside of the clinic. Um, and whether or not they do, people shouldn't be criminalized or exposed to, you know, um, substances that aren't what they claim to be. Um, or otherwise, you know, exposed to harm if they choose to use them. So we, we really focus on uh, harm reduction, teaching people, you know, how to respond to difficult situations and how to create safety um, around their experiences, giving people, um, you know, more information about psychedelics and the harms of criminalization, and then, of course, the clinical trials. And we need to reach a lot of people with this message. You know, Stephen can tell you all about how the LGBTQ community is explicitly and specifically at um, higher risk. Well, can we actually, we we need to take a break. So I do want to, let's continue this conversation about the impact of psychedelics on the LGBTQ community after this. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. We are back and we're talking about how psychedelics can help with PTSD, depression, and anxiety. Um, There are some clinical trials happening um, with MDMA right now in certain states like Oregon, coming up in Colorado. 
they're going to be voting on legalizing psychoactive mushrooms. It's already happening in Oregon. That's what I meant. But back with us is Betty Aldworth and Stephen Wong from MAPS. It's the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies. As we dive in, thanks again for being here. Thanks for having us. Um, so we were just about to talk about how this all impacts the LGBTQ community. So let's dive into that. Yeah. So we talked about earlier about how MDMA could be a really effective treatment for PTSD. And if you belong to a marginalized identity group, like you're queer or you're trans, or you're a person of color, there's a higher chance that you've encountered something traumatic in your life. Because let's be real, it's not always rainbows and cupcakes being queer. Um, our community has higher rates of PTSD and less access to diagnosis and treatment. So we're doing a lot of things to make sure that this treatment is available um, for our community. And how, uh, so I, I have a question, how are you doing that um, to make it more accessible? We know certain communities that are definitely into this um, and, you know, if you go to Burning Man, you would see that, well, that's not I mean, like, that's more of a that, Exactly, situation. that's more of like social party. That's, that's social. not where the work you're doing. Yeah. Uh, there's multiple <laughs> layers to this. But I do always wonder, how do you incorporate this in therapy? Is there, is it like going to a regular therapist and it's just like a session of, of communicating with someone and then this is used in a part of the, re and then this is used for research? Like, can you break down what that actually looks like in a session? Yeah, yeah. So there's, um, as Betty mentioned earlier, there's 42 hours of therapy, but only 24 of those hours are in like the dosing sessions where you're on MDMA. The other hours are spent before to like prepare. And there are also hours spent afterwards in integration. So there's three eight hour dosing sessions and you're with a therapist pair. You're with two therapists um, during this protocol. Um, and then there's time before and after the session to prepare and integrate that experience. Wow. Yeah, it's really important to take note of because of what I was saying before, the assumption of just being at Burning Man. That said, how do we make it just wrap up? Uh, and if Betty wants to jump in 30 seconds, like how do we make it more accessible to communities that uh, might not be knowing about this or having been included in the past? Well, you know, one of the pieces of work that Stephen's running is our health equity program. And we are working on training therapists to have culturally relevant life experiences, making sure that if this therapy is approved, there are BIPOC and queer therapists who are prepared to treat communities. It's super important when people go into therapy that they are working with a therapist who understands their life experience. And so we're training therapists with scholarship programs. We're reaching out to communities um, through programs just like this. And all of that, all of our research, all of this work that we do is all funded by donors and philanthropists. We're a nonprofit um, doing drug development. And um, so, you know, how we're making it more accessible is through these programs and how listeners can make it more accessible is by going to maps.org slash health equity to learn more. All right. And perhaps even become a donor themselves. Look at that. We could talk about this for much longer, but we have to go. That was Betty Aldworth and Stephen Wong <laughs> from MAPS. Uh, again, maps.org. Thank you again. Thank you. 
And we've got more Let's Go There right after this. A new virus starting in China. We'll tell you more on what's trending this hour. Let's Go There with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Odyssey is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. I'm moving on to uh, the small city of Vincent, Alabama, who voted to disband its entire police department after racist text messages sent by one of its police officers were made public. Um, The city will now rely on a neighboring sheriff's office in Shelby County to answer emergency calls. And finally... Nearly three dozen people have been sickened by a new virus spreading in China, with scientists warning it's too early to tell if it's deadly or spreads among humans. The Langia henipa virus, or Lay-V, appears to be jumping from animals in parts of China. It belongs to a family of viruses that are known to infect humans and cause fatal disease. However, so far, none of the 35 confirmed Lay-V cases have proven deadly. Oh, God. Anyway, well, that was what's trending this hour. Uh, what's coming up in uh, entertainment news? What's happening? Okay, so let's talk about Olivia Wilde. Um, because remember when Olivia was publicly served divorce papers? Well, now we're hearing her side. It's time for those two reports. Uh, those pop culture stories trending right now. So Olivia Wilde is firing back after she was served uh, custody papers from her ex, Jason Sudeikis, while on stage at CinemaCon. We all remember that. We talked about it here. Uh, the 38-year-old director, she basically filed court doc- docs of her own, alleging that Jason tried to, quote, embarrass and threaten her by publicly delivering the custody paperwork. So, Olivia and Jason basically initially agreed that their children would complete the upcoming school year in L.A. while, you know, Jason filmed Ted Lasso in London. Well, honey, you know, she's now arguing that the outrageous legal tactics felt calculated. Uh, Jason's actions were clearly intended to threaten me and catch me off guard. He could have served me discreetly, but instead he chose to serve me in the most aggressive manner possible. It's unfortunate that the situation's getting a little bit dirty. Um, But also, like, Ted Lasso playing the sweetest character ever, but there's a dark side. I mean, it also feels like it—it's it, kind of like his character going through the divorce and all that, living in London. They're living in the U.S. Yeah, it's weird. It kind of mirrors it. I mean, it's—it is. A, I, oh my God, you're so right. Because yeah. literally, he's his character is divorce. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, I feel bad for her. That's your tea report, though. We got more coming up next hour. All right. Well, coming up after this. Uh, The pandemic has changed young people's relationships with sex, but not in the way you think. We'll reveal more about that next. 
Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. A new study has shown how the pandemic has changed the sex lives of young adults. Let's Stop AIDS research has revealed Canadian youth are now less likely to use condoms or be treated for sexually transmitted infections. And here to share more is Shaman Mohammed Jr., the founder of Let's Stop AIDS. Thanks for joining us. This is... Uh, very concerning and surprising considering how much work has been done around education and prevention. So what happens here? So the pandemic really taught us one thing, that young people are still having sex. Um, and it's it's one part about that that's, that's not the shocking part. I think the shocking part is that young people have been having more sex, have become more sexually adventurous during the pandemic. They've also started to become a little bit more comfortable. In the last three months, the number of Canadian youth who did not use a condom had doubled compared to pre-pandemic. Wow. I mean, that's so interesting because, I mean, here, I know that I, the, the last time I saw a survey around this actually indicated that a new study um, between men and women between the ages of 18 to 24 are actually having sex less often. And it was because of, like, the pandemic and the ways that it really disconnected us. We didn't know how to jump back into, like, oh, how do we date again? How do we, you know, form, you know, relationships again? It felt like this moment yeah, it could allow us to express ourselves sexually when it came to ourself versus it actually when it, we're in the, you know, dating pool and trying to get to know other people. Where, did you see some of that as well? Like difficulties oh, of jumping uh, back into there, into the swing of things? Oh, absolutely. So what we realized was that when young people were having sex or when they were meeting individuals, just like the rest of the world, we had an issue of where would we meet? There was that accessibility factor where we couldn't meet in a coffee shop, a movie theater. It ended up being that person's home. When you're in someone's home and someone puts their hands on it, sometimes it's difficult to find a place. Could it be their bedroom, their living room, whatever it is? Now, what this sort of put people into a situation where they were sort of peer pressured of whether they should have sex, we realized that more than ever, uh, due, due to one of our survey results, it was showing that more people were having sex on their first date than any other time. And I guess when you reflect on that, uh, people weren't, just like you said, people weren't meeting that many individuals. But when they were meeting them, they were more likely to have sex because they were like, you know, that whole YOLO thing. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so what's being done to you know change this because obviously this you know you don't want this um data to continue going the way it is well i think it's really important for organizations especially like let's stop aids and and many other great organizations in the united states and canada to to really be getting the medicine message across about uh about testing i think until we start having a comprehensive way to go and get tested where you don't have to walk into a clinic and be told about in the u.s i know you need insurances and you need to ask about do you have this coverage and that i think it needs to be a zero questions approach in canada it still has to be when you say that you're going to get tested for everything you still have to say plus hiv like it's still at a point where we need to be able to better understand. And, and there was some stuff that came across to me really from the survey that just was really uh, mind-boggling to show the, the lack of knowledge of it. Like 26% of youth have knowledge of PrEP, 20% know about PEP, and 11% of young people know about U equals U. And, and you know what was a little bit more shocking about it? The audience that the world would, I say, stereotypically assume would know about, uh, let's say, gay men, uh, what would be your guesses of gay men that you think know about U equals U? Hopefully well, most. Like to, yeah, I mean, not really. I'm, I'm on Grinder. 
<laughs> I know a lot of people are still mm-hmm. have a lot of stigma when it comes to, um, you know, you ver- like you and like basically, uh, there's so much stigma around HIV and AIDS right now. Like so, there's still so, so much. So, so for young gay men, only 33% knew about what U equals U is. So if in our audience of a group that we would assume would know the most about that undetectable equals untransmittable, we need to generalize knowledge. We need to make gen- make the topic of understanding about HIV um, one more approachable, uh, more uh, something that we can all discuss. And, you know, the pandemic has really put people into a situation. It was some interesting parts that came on. You spoke about Grindr and Tinder and other apps. 37% of youth... Uh, on online dating apps reported an increase in backsliding. I'm not sure if you heard of that term, but they were backsliding back to old exes and old dates due to lockdown. And and really, that also was a little troubling just because it was essentially individuals finding just their comfort zone during that period, which, as you can know, can not exactly be the best approach to things. Uh, So I guess what's the takeaway now? You have this research. Are you, uh, you know, bringing it to other, uh, you know, Canadian, I guess, it, I don't know, with doctors or the healthcare system, and I, what can we learn also being in America? So, so I think right now the the key takeaway here is that we need to make sure that these that organizations like Let's Stop AIDS and many others make the topic about HIV, about self-testing, about PrEP available and accessible. But one key part is until it's accessible, it's not really reachable. So until it's easy to get a test, until it's easy to get a condom, until it's easy to uh, get access to these tools that we have in the basket, we're not really going to really move the needle. And I think what we're realizing more and more is that until, uh, until we're able to make these topics more generalized and available and accessible, we're, we're really into a little bit of a situation where uh, history has shown itself until we start making things really accessible, it doesn't work. Look at, it, look at COVID testing. It wasn't yeah. until it was easily accessible to everyone's home that they could do it in their own homes to get tested. Imagine doing the same for STIs and HIV, getting tested at your own home totally. and getting results right away. You, you would be able to take action a lot quicker and, and decrease that stigma of waiting in that waiting room with everyone awkwardly looking at each other. Yeah, well, um, the, just the latest stats and we'll say goodbye because we have to go. But um, in Canada, the Canadian government announced it would be dedicating $8 million to the purchase of HIV home test kits. In the U.S., the CDC actually said that the COVID-19 pand- pandemic disrupted HIV testing efforts in the U.S., so there's a lot of work to do. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us. That was Shaman Mohammed Jr., founder of Let's Stop AIDS. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. All right, well, speaking of relationships, and we're going to kind of keep this conversation going a little bit. Can't seem to get into a long-term relationship. It's not necessarily your fault, but you could be the only one to fix it. More up next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. You know, shout out to all the folks who are wondering, you know, I just can't seem to get into a long-term relationship. No matter how I try. You know, I get to dating. I get. Are you talking about you? First of all, watch your mouth. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you were like you. No, I'm t- well, this is our subject here. Oh. This is what we're talking about here. There's tons of people, according uh, to this Refinery29 article, where people are like saying, I just cannot seem to get past third base. And third base in this case is like after the dating phase, right? Long term is a long term relationship. If you can't get to that, what's the issue? Well, joining us is Francesca Hoagie, who is a relationship coach. And I heard she's pretty popular and pretty like really good at this. So, Francesca, 
How you doing? Hey. Hi, I am great. I'm so excited to be here and uh, talk about this question because I hear this question a lot. And you know, uh, it's an important question. Yeah. Who's to blame? I... <laughs> <laughs> well, the crazy thing is, we were actually, before we got on air, we were talking about your beautiful relationship that you're in, and I wonder, as a relationship coach, is, is the, 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 the tools that you have as a relationship coach, does it actually help you get to that your long-term relationship? Did it help you um, find your partner that you're with now? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, because I did... When I first started in the love industry, I started as a matchmaker and I was in a relationship, but then it ended. So I was single as a coach and um, definitely working with clients like this, like this woman who, who wrote into this article, um, who are really struggling with these issues. It helped me so much to understand how much of an inside job love is. And, you know, it's so easy to see it in other people. And once I was able to see it so clearly in other people, I was able to really shift and heal things within myself and just prepare myself to receive a beautiful partner, which is what I did. Well, so yeah, with that, if someone's in this or having this issue, then I think that it's, it could get confusing because people will say, Oh, there's just no good people. I mean, depending on where you live, there's no good people in New York. There's no good people in LA. Yeah. But, could be making some points. Oh, yes. <laughs> but uh, how much is it other people versus, as you mentioned, really the work that the person gets to do how do you find that balance yeah so here's the thing it's never about your geography i mean in the sense that no it no matter where you live and first of all i've worked with people all over the country all over the world literally everybody thinks that where they live is the worst place for dating okay (laughs) all right everybody they're like no no you don't understand dc is the worst no, you don't understand. San Francisco's the worst. No, you don't understand. London's the worst. No, you don't. like everybody. It doesn't matter. Everybody thinks it because when you're looking for a serious relationship, you know, and especially if you have the attitude where, like this, this woman who wrote in, it's very fear-based. It's very scarcity-based, right? It's very much like something's wrong with me because I haven't met this person yet. So now you're bringing all of this anxiety. And that's the way you're approaching relationships. And yeah, it's not going to work out because yeah. that's the energy that you're bringing to the process. Um, you know, I mean, like the question, like to this this particular Refinery Twenty One article. You know, she, when she's describing her situation, she says, "I want love. I want this partnership." But then she goes on to say, "I invest in people who aren't nice to me, who are toxic, who you know." So it's like it's that's complicated. Why. <laughs> I mean, that's what, you know, so, so the real question is, well, what is it that's forcing me to only invest in people who are incapable mm. of being the type of partner I'm seeking? Okay, so let's um, step away from this article really quick, because I, I something that's coming up for me as someone who is a black queer person, right? I, I often, it's also interesting, I've been seeing a lot of conversations online about folks, especially black people, wanting to th- see more examples of like black love and like see more examples of what that means. And then they also kind of have really jarring, across the spectrum, to be honest, of whatever your sexual orientation is, they have really jarring perspectives when it comes to inter- interracial relationships. Mm-hmm. And I would love to know your perspective on that because it's like, I feel like that can be a barrier when people are just looking for one thing and not allowing themselves to explore what interracial relationships can be. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I understand why some people have a knee jerk reaction like, nope, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, but I think, 
the point is always with love, whether regardless of anybody's, you know, whether they're black, whether they're white, no matter their their gender, their gender identity, their sexual orientation, anything, you are always seeking and not just one person because there's more than one person for everyone. I don't mean it in a sense there's only one, but you're seeking a person, right? A singular person who's always going to be unlike everybody else that you've met. Yeah. Because that's going to be the thing that connects you with that person. And so if you just say like, you know, I want love, but it has to be this color. I mean, that's your right. You can, you can decide whatever you want, but you could also open yourself up to the possibility that, there's somebody out there who might not look the way I thought they would, but mm-hmm. when I meet that person, it, it's gonna it's gonna be so worth it, and yeah. I I don't want to close myself off to that possibility. So they say it's about like focus on the feeling right. when you mm-hmm. want to manifest something. Like how do you want to feel? Because then when you feel that way, you're more likely to like connect with actually your like internal internal energy and values and all that when you focus on the feeling versus when you're focused on like well I want them to be this this that you'll find a lot of people that way but it might not be aligned with actually how you want to feel and I feel like people's exactly. list can get them in trouble like they're this, this idea of a list can you talk about mm-hmm. the, the list that we all have yes so the problem with the list and the thing is and I always tell people I'm like you can have a thousand things on your list if you want to however you cannot prioritize them all equally and you cannot expect them all to exist in one person. So if you, because, and and actually share what you just said is so right because it's so important because people do not think about, people often do not think about how they want to feel in their relationship. They assume that they'll meet a perfect person, the the list, right? Everybody, they assume that they're going to meet somebody who checks all the boxes. And then because of that, they will then feel good and they'll be happy and they'll live happily ever after. And that's not how it works. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm still right? trying to draw the boxes if I'm being quite honest. <laughs> have some so, <laughs> so people are so, get so focused on, I want to be in a relationship. Well, what do you want that? Relationships have, they have qualities, they have characteristics, they have dynamics, they have energy. What do you want that to be? Because if you say you want this beautiful, loving partnership, but you're choosing people who are toxic or you're choosing people who are unavailable or you're closing yourself up to people who are available or you are more focused on being liked by the other person and, and being quote unquote chosen rather than mutually choosing each other, then that's what you're going to get in a relationship. So if you think it doesn't feel good now, it's certainly not going to feel good down the road Come in this on. relationship with this person. So Francesca, you are over. I, we could talk to you for I, hours. I always say read the book attached and go to Francesca for advice. Please, seriously, Francesca, <laughs> tell everyone super quickly where they can find you online. Um, so I am at Dear Franny everywhere, Instagram, Twitter, Clubhouse, all the places. Yeah, yeah. Um, I host a weekly room on Clubhouse every Monday, Manifestation Monday, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. And my website is FrancescaHoagie.com. And I have a, po- a podcast called Dear Franny, and um, I'm actually about to release my 99th episode this week. Congratulations. I'm obsessed Thank with you. you. I know our listeners are. Thank you so much for being here. And uh, y'all, we got more show coming up next. And it's actually, I, we're talking about the CEO. Is that what we're going to talk about? Yes. Uh, All right. He posted himself doing something, a selfie, and people are not happy about it next. Let's go there with Shira and Ryan. Channel Q. The CEO of a company has hypersocial has gone viral after he posted this LinkedIn post showing a picture of himself crying. 
crying and talking about firing people and the layoffs that he had to go through, uh, saying this will be the most vulnerable thing I'll ever share. And he continues to say, um, I've gone back and forth whether to post this. We just had to lay off a few of our employees and uh, because of the economy or whatever other reason. And he said, Our, ours is my fault. I made a decision and stuck with it. So he actually took accountability. That said, he still shared, it sucks. Um, and it was a very uh, vulnerable post. I don't think we see normally. But a lot of people had a lot to say, as you can imagine. And I... Yeah, I understand why they did have a lot yeah. to say. So, what do you think? Some people obviously were like, "Great, this is awesome. We need more of this." Like, sorry that you like this sucks, and yeah, I hear you. I see both sides of this. I see why he thought this was a good idea. I see what he was trying to do. Um, but I think when it comes to like this posting of the photo, it's like one: what was going on when you were kind of laying off these folks in real time? Maybe they would have appreciated maybe seeing this emotion. Not sure if it actually happened or was this an after thing? Who knows? I'm just saying. Also. I think when we're thinking about what it really means to show people that we are like, you know, especially in a, a CEO position, you are, you, you're feeling it, you're feeling tough about the situation. Well, what's the extra mile to take? Because tears aren't going to solve people's problems of being left, like, you know, left to just like basically figure out what they're going to do next, right? And some would argue, and I think a lot of the uh, conversation online was about, well, was there a severance package? What was some things that took place to make sure these people, because at the end of the day, his life really isn't changing that much, right? It is. It does suck. He, he can feel it. It seems like he's a really great guy, but it still feels like at the end of the day, people are not going to find that, you know, the empathy for them, for him when they just lost their job. It's uh, just not that simple. You know what I mean? Totally. I don't know the details. Let's be clear about his company, how much money they're making, how much money they have, and he's keeping yeah. himself. No, but I mean, that matters. Like, if you're talking about, which we see big CEOs of big companies laying everyone off and then keeping, you know, their whatever million a year, right? And then you're like, well, I don't really feel bad for you. It could still be hard, but still it's like, okay, well, what have you done? Have you taken a hit too? Well, you're, every, you're forcing everyone else to take a hit. That said, I um, oh we need to go, but uh, there there's a lot of toxic toxicity around you know one being a startup founder is difficult. There's been a lot of people who have taken their lives because of it, and I think that on that on that end we do need to see more being real, not just hey like oh I, I'm but celebrating need- this, I'm celebrating that. We need to sh- sh- we need people to be honest about these moments why that are really difficult. But why the selfie though, Shira? I think. People, he when even you said, he's like, camera, I thought this was cheesy. I used to, is. I'm not a cry person. But it was one of those moments. He's like, I think that, and listen. It doesn't, bo- it doesn't, with people who are regular people. I think it was just a, a way of are, expressing himself. I know, but, but the, I don't think, I think that sometimes misses the opportunity. And then it also, uh, it allows an opening for people to question if you actually care about what you're crying about or actually care about I think the people, that, in the comments, a lot valid. of people, yes, but. You know, at a certain point, we uh, we can look into this and question it. We could also give people the benefit of the doubt and like, what if, you know, and, and look at the the impact this could make. Um, because I do think there needs to be just like there's more transparency now. We're finally in a better place where employees are speaking out yeah. about stuff. And I, I hope think that like helping them outside lead, of this. CEOs lead by example. So if we want more vulnerability in the workplace, it does start from the top. But I don't think it needs to be in this way. I think there's other ways that can this was register to folks. I know, but that doesn't necessarily mean it can't change. And if you're going to say that it's his way, that means 
you're, we're yeah, stuck it's his in his way. I know, but he can't I like be stuck everyone. in that. It's, he an, has to it's hear, a personal experience. He has to be able to hear feedback, which but, just seems is. like the key of this week. He knew. Listening yes. to feedback to know, hey, this doesn't land well to folks, our employees, our people who see this and how they view society, uh, how society views CEOs and execs. If you really want to show folks, I mean, there's a guy, his name is, and you know, his name is Dan Price, and he's kind of known to be the big CEO who like chops his own salary to like oh, yeah, give to Dan, other folks. Yeah, yeah like, great. and so I think, you know, when we have examples of what can possibly happen, these little performative things don't really register with folks. Not saying they're not right or if they're good or bad or whatever. It just is like you have to think about the bigger picture here. And it's not just about that's his way. It can't be that kind of Well, everyone has. I think we need to um, let people express themselves as well. <laughs> that's still not so. allowing for growth. But all right. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Odyssey is giving you a chance to win a trip to London to see Taylor Swift at the Eras Tour. It's Tay in the UK. Hey, it's Taylor. Just download the free Odyssey app, log in and listen to a participating station for a minimum of 60 minutes to get your daily entry. And you could win a chance to fly off to London with three friends and see Taylor. I can't wait to see you at the Eras Tour in London. For more, go to odyssey.com slash Taylor. Tay in the UK. It's on the Odyssey app. Thanks to Republic Records. This is a national contest. Hey. 